This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together for Hip hop, hip hop. Cause who I'm talking about, y'all, is hip hop. The stories of hip hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who, inside of them, the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. This is Master Ace from Brooklyn, New York. Been in the game, making records since 1988. I started off with super producer Marley Marl and the Juice Crew on Cold Chillin' Records, and I've been doing it ever since. Good Times by Sheik was a disco record, and when I was coming up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, that was pretty much the quintessential record that every rapper in the neighborhood wanted to rap over. When the DJ played that groove, especially that breakdown part, Good Times, and just kept bringing that back, bringing that bass line breakdown part back. That was what MCs near and far wanted to get the mic in their hands and say some raps over that beat. When I hear that record, it just, it takes me back to 12, 13 years old, being in the parks, specifically in the park of my projects called Howard Park, and seeing the DJs out with the turntable set up right in the corner of the basketball court, and there being somewhere around four or five hundred people packed into the park dancing, and having a good time and all the cats was drinking and smoking you know we were just kind of little guys just happy to be in that atmosphere the, the summer times were just filled with music and I lived on the seventh floor in my building and I remember like those evenings right around dusk somebody would call out yo they're jamming in the park and um, as soon as I heard that I knew where I was going to be for that evening and I would wait till I hear that first kind of bass sound coming from the park and then I would be out the door unfortunately at that age you know 12 years old or so I had to be back in the house when it was my time to go in the house I would go in the house, but what I would do is my grandmother's window faced the park. So I would sit in her window and listen to the continuation of the party. I would listen to the different records that were being played, how they were being scratched. I would listen to the different rappers. You know, it was like probably a, a city block away, but I could actually see the very fence of the park. I would just sit at the window and just listen to those sounds. and. I actually haven't thought about that in many, many years. Having to leave the park and leave the action, but going right to the window and sitting at the window for an hour, sometimes two hours, and just hearing 
cats rapping, hearing beats and scratches and just wanting to hear what was happening in the park. People came to where the music was, but there was all kinds of fights. Dudes would get stabbed. There was beef with other crews that played music from other projects. There was a story once, and I, luckily I was already home upstairs. A group of DJs from Langston Hughes Projects came to our projects, and one of the rival dudes pulled out a shotgun and blew out the speakers, like right in the middle of the party, and turned it off. And everybody went scattering, running in every direction. And I was up, you know, upstairs at that time, and I, that was one of those nights where I was kind of glad that I had a curfew. You know, I remember hip hop has always been kind of based on the, the concept of battling and, and outdoing your opponent and being better. That's why there was always rivalry, whether it was heavy-duty rivalry with weapons or if it's just rivalry in terms of, I don't like those dudes because they think they're better than us. There was a lot of that stuff kind of going on. Everybody was just kind of trying to find their place, find their way, but it was all around, it was all revolving around me. Growing up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, in the projects, music was always around. I grew up in the era where the radio, we call them boxes. The box was like the important centerpiece to music and social kind of interaction with your peers. It's where everybody sat around playing tapes. You know, we didn't call them mixtapes back then, but essentially that's what they were. They were tapes that, you know, somebody taped a bunch of different songs off the radio and kind of pieced them all together. We used to have something called pause tapes. And what a pause tape was, was you would actually go in the house and you would find, say, a record like Good Times, and you would play that crucial part that you wanted to play. You would record it on cassette, that crucial part, and then you would push pause. And then you would back the record up and start it over again and let the pause button go and record and try to make each pause beat on beat as if a DJ were cutting, but at that time, we didn't really have the technology of a mixer and two turntables, but we knew what we wanted it to sound like. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. Up to the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, the purple, and yellow. But first, I gotta bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie. Say up, jump, the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie, let's rock. You don't stop, rock the rhythm, that'll make your body rock. What people consider the first rap record, Sugar Hill Gang, the first big commercially successful rap record, the whole basis of that record, the baseline, the music was based on the song Good Times by Sheik. The first time I heard the Sugar Hill Gang, it was at my best friend's sister's Sweet 16 party. I must have been 14. And I remember that record coming on. Everybody was dancing real tight and close and it was real hot and sweaty and the lights were low. And it was a, it was a, a typical house party. Think about the, the painting from, from Good Times. Like That's what the vibe was. What made that record successful, in all honesty, was the fact that they based their music around Good Times, which was the groove of the hip-hop genre. Like It started off to be the first real backdrop of 
hip hop in terms of music because there weren't drum machines yet. Dudes weren't creating their own music. It would, you, you would rap over something, and that was one of the records to rap over. When that record came on, dudes would try to get to that mic as fast as possible if they had rhymes. And that Sugar Hill Gang record was successful purely based on the fact that it was driven here, by right? the good but times baseline. I want to do, I want to know is Brooklyn in the place. <laughs> Brooklyn's out there. Best eye with best eye. Really? Yeah. We can get started like this. You know it. You know it. Everybody put your hands in the air. Let me see everybody put your hands in the air. If you came to have a party right now, everybody let me hear say I believe the year was 1986. They had a rap contest and I stepped on stage for the first time ever as a solo rapper and performed in this rap contest with first prize being studio time with Molly Maul, six hours of studio time. Amazingly, I was able to win that contest and that's how I met Molly Maul and that is what catapulted my career into the music business. The funny thing about winning that contest is that the second prize was $500. And I kind of had my eyes on that, to be honest with you. To me, that sounded more valuable. I was a young kid, $500 sounded like a whole lot of money. I didn't really have any sense of what that meant or what it could potentially lead to. I thought maybe it would lead to me putting out a single, you know, like one record and being on the radio. My goal then was just to kind of have a song on the radio. I thought that would be cool. And that's really as far as my brain went. I didn't think about a career. I didn't think about going any further than just, you know, one song and being on the radio. Okay, party people in the house. You're about to witness something you've never witnessed before. Yes, it's the original human beatbox, Dougie Fresh, and his partner, the Grand Wizard, MC, Ricky, D, D, and that's me in the place to be. We're going to show you how we do it for 85, kick it live, all right? Because um, I got a funny feeling um, you're all sick of all these crab rappers biting their rhymes because um, they're backstabbers. But uh, when it comes to me and my friend Doug Fresh here, there is no competition because we are the best, yeah. Finesse and press, which we prove. And y'all will realize that we are the move. So listen close um, so you all don't miss as we go a little something like this. Hit it! So when I, when I rapped over that contest, drum machines had become more prevalent. One of the first drum machines that oh, anybody yeah. used back then was called the Dr. Rhythm. It was a really small drum machine about is about as long as a, a tissue box. Back then what we would do is we would program our own drum beats. And I think at that time I was basing my drum track on the record Lottie Dottie by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. So it was kind of the same basic groove that they used. And I created a rhyme that was similar in that way in, in terms of telling a story that had an interesting or surprise ending. We brought the Dr. Rhythm to the contest and it was actually programmed to play my entire song. Like, in other words, it started where it was supposed to start and it ended right where it was supposed to end. Dougie Fresh was, his, his, his beat was just kind of boom, bat, ba-boom, boom, bat. And I just kind of took that boom, bat, ba-boom, boom, bat. But the song Lottie Dottie that Slick Rick told was about this girl. And as he's telling the story, he's walking you through what happened. And then there's this, always this like kind of punchline at the end of the whole story. Oh, yeah. On that one, he was like, in which a wrinkle pussy, I can't be your lover. So I came up with you know a 
a rhyme about a girl or about a couple of different girls. But it was basically the same kind of deal, you know, sexcapades with a surprise ending. You know what? Your people is lardy dardy. We like to party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. We're just some men that's on the mic. And when we rock up on the mic, we rock the mic. For all of y'all, keeping y'all in health. Just to see you smile and enjoy yourself. Cause it's cool when you cause a cozy condition and, uh, that we create. Cause that's our mission. So listen uh, to what we say. Because this type of shit, it happens every day. I woke up around 10 o'clock in the morning. I gave myself a stretcher. A morning yawning. Went to the bathroom to wash up. Had some soap on my face and my hand upon a cup. I said, um, Mara Mara on the wall. Who is the top choice? Of them all, there was a rumble dumble. Five minutes it lasted. The mayor said, "You are you conceited bastard." Lottie Dottie was a uh, was 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 not even oh, a song true. originally. It was what we so called a tape. It was a routine that Dougie and Slick Rick did at some party. They were at a club somewhere. Dougie Fresh did the beatbox, and Slick Rick told this story to a live audience, and. What you hear on the tape, the original tape, is the audience reacting to every line, every crazy line. In the story, you would hear, oh! The summer that that tape hit the streets, that was the hot tape to have. If you had that Lottie Dottie playing in your box, people would crowd around your box to listen to that night that they were at that club and recorded that routine or that story with Dougie doing the beatbox. They went back later and re-recorded it and turned it into an actual record. But the original, you hear the crowd reacting and responding to every line. And it was just raw. That was hip-hop. It had a huge influence on me in my early days of writing and being a, a ra- the rapper that I eventually became. But well, that's true. That's why we never have no beef. So then I washed off the soap and brushed the gold teeth. You thought I love Ole because my skin gets pale. And then I got the files for my fingernails. Due to the night and on my behalf, I put the bubbles in the tub so I could have a bubble bath. Clean, dry was my body and hair. I threw on my brand new Gucci underwear. For all the girls I might take home, I got the Johnson's baby powder and the polo cologne. Fresh dress like a million bucks. Threw on the ballet shoes and the fly green socks stepped out my house stopped short oh no i went back in i forgot my kango and then i dilly i ran through her i bumped into my old girl from the valley this is a girl plays hard to get so i said what's wrong because she looked upset she said um it's all because of you i'm feeling sad and blue you went away and now my life is filled with rainy days and i love you so how much you'll never know because you took your love away from me the night that i did the contest that, that i participated in this contest a friend of mine had called me and invited me to that contest and i told him that i couldn't go because it was i was home on christmas break from college i was home with the family you know, we had just eaten dinner and I just didn't think it was the right thing to, you know, leave the house when I'm home and I'm with family and it's Christmas. And my mother overheard the conversation, me hanging out with my friends saying, nah, I'm home with the family. I'm going to chill, have a good time, hang up. And then she said, well, why don't you just go ahead and, you know, go. It's cool. We ate already. You know, why don't you go ahead and go? And I was like, for real? All right. And so I called my boy back. His name, his name was Scooter. I called Scooter back, and his sister answered the phone. She was like, oh, he left already. 
And I'm like, oh, man, because I, I, I don't know where the place is. Never been there before, nothing. She was like, wait a minute, let me see if I can get them. And she puts the phone down and goes outside and walks. I don't know how far she walked, but I heard her yelling his name up the block. And he comes all the way back, gets on the phone. I said, yo, I'm going to meet you. Tell me what train. I'm going to meet you on the train. That chain of events led to me winning a contest that led to me meeting Marley Maul and led to me talking to you today. Jumping Jehoshaphat and something that goes with that. I'm more funky than a four-year-old yoga mat. I got more bounce than a 64-ounce Homestyle Tropicana, Papa Santa. Father Christmas is just propaganda like pro... Oh, hi there. Sorry, but I'm just... What's up? Practicing my freesties in the mirror. You must be my new roommate. Cool, I'm Paul from Saskatchewan. Nice to meet you. What's up? Is this room 3A? Yeah. This is Garfield? Garfield dorm? Garfield dorm. 3A. You got it, man. You're definitely my new roommate, and this is definitely your bed, because it's the one that's not made. Mine is right over here, and I took the corresponding closet. Right, right. So what's your name, Money Grip? Um... My name is Ace. This can't be right. Cool. So, Ace, where are you from? I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Brooklyn? Holy cow! I have heard so much about Brooklyn from my favorite rap tunes. What's it really like? Is it really, like, um, dangerous everywhere? It's nothing like Saskatchewan, I bet. Let's just say it's different. I had kind of gone to college letting cats know that I rap. And I went to a school where there wasn't a whole lot of culture going on. I went to the University of Rhode Island. At that time that I was there, it was about 97% white. The only minorities in the school at that time were on sports teams. I was literally the only African-American student that wasn't on a sports team. After my first year, they had a, some kind of recruiting program that, to bring more minorities into the school to kind of change the demographic of the school a little bit and add a little bit more diversity. It was at that time that an influx of maybe 40, maybe 50 uh, African-American kids were brought in in my sophomore year that didn't play sports, that were just students that lived in the state of Rhode Island that got a, got a break on the tuition. And so, you know, I had a little bit more people kind of to be around. There's a lot of house parties at the fraternity houses and stuff like that. And then I got connected with the college radio station where I started to go up there and help out at the station. And, you know, every now and then I would break into a spontaneous freestyle and, and rhyme over some beats up there. And the response that I got from people validated the fact that I was kind of doing the right stuff. I had a lot of difficulties on campus being kind of the only black kid that didn't play a sport. Coming from Brownsville, coming from Brooklyn, I wasn't comfortable with my surroundings. Like I would walk through campus and kids would just be really nice and just say, hi, how you doing? And I felt at that time, like, oh, he's only saying hi to me because I'm black and he wants to prove he's not racist. Like, I was just really going through it, trying to figure out how I fit in there. 
I wound up telling my mother after my freshman year that I wanted to transfer, and I wanted to transfer to Howard, like the polar opposite of Rhode Island. She understood when she said, how about you just try one more semester your sophomore year and see how that goes. So she talked me into trying one more semester. So my first semester sophomore year is when they had that recruiting program. It was a huge influx, and those 50 or 60 black kids from the state of Rhode Island and I felt more comfortable. I felt content to stay, and I stayed the four years and graduated. Listen closely, so your attention's undivided. Many in the past have tried to do what I did. Just the way I came off then, I'm gonna come off. Stronger and longer, even with the trouble. I'll keep on going and flowing just like a river. I got a whole lot to give, so I'm a giver. Little at a time, new trails I'm blazing. Action is in effect, and always stays in. Yeah, just like a shot from a cannon. Charge and I'm a planet. Jam strong enough that it can lift your soul. I'm the originator, and my rhymes are made of gold. Once you hear the capital A, rap it'll stay with you for a while. It won't go away unless you force it. Of course, it stays with you, my friend. And if you force it away, I'ma hit you again. I wasn't supposed to be on the symphony. The symphony was supposed to be Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Rap, Craig G, and MC Shan. Shan and, and the other guys were supposed to be on this record. This was Molly Maul's idea. The day that we actually shot the photo for Marley Marlin Control next to the Learjet on the back of the cover, that day is the day that we actually recorded the symphony. On that day, because Marley had everybody in one place, he said, yo, we're going to go to my house, we're going to record this one last record for the album. And MC Sham was like, nah, I'm not messing with that. So he basically declined to be on the record and he went on his way. And I just really wanted to tag along. It was my first day meeting Kane. I wanted to kind of just watch guys create. I just wanted to see the process. I wanted to see what other dudes did in the studio. Maybe I learned something. So we all trooped over to Marley's house, and he put the beat on, and those guys all started writing, and I was just kind of sitting back, hanging out. When it came time to record, there was this big hesitation among all three of them as to who was going to go first, and nobody wanted to go first. I think it was just a matter of I want to hear what they're going to say before I say what I'm going to say. So Marley just looked at me and said, Ace, why don't you just go in and and kind of warm the mic up? Back then, I had several rhymes in my head memorized that I could spit at any moment. So I went in and spit a rhyme that I had in my head. And in my opinion, he had no intention on keeping my verse. It was just a way to get those guys off their butts and get them in the booth. Everybody recorded their verses afterwards, and he decided to keep me on the record. And the rest is history. I believe that's me. Craig G, light up the mic for the symphony. The gym is dedicated to all unoptimistics. That thought I wasn't coming out with some exquisite rhymes. That's all right, because now I'm back to kill all the rumors and straighten the facts of me. Not rocking rhymes like I always used to, but you jumped on the tip when you heard me in the juice cruise. You said, mm-mm-mm, ain't that something? No, Craig, I heard you in that jam and it's pumping. I apologize. Oh, yeah, and uh, can I have your autograph of me and my grammar? When that symphony video came out, it just like kind of changed the dynamic of me in my own neighborhood. I remember a specific day coming through my old projects, which my grandmother still had lived there at that time, and I was still coming to check dudes and hang out and see dudes, and I just decided to bring Craig G with me one day. So we were outside by my building. I was introducing him to a few of my friends that I grew up with. 
And within, no lie, within 15 to 20 minutes, word had gotten to the other side of my project. So my project was like, I don't know, 15 to 20 buildings. Word had got to the entire other side of the projects that Master Ace and Craig G was over on the other side of the projects. And within 15 minutes, these dudes from the other side of the projects, they made their way over there. And what they were hoping to find was that we had on the same big dookie rope chains that we had on in the video because they were going to rob us. And they came through. One of the dudes was on a bicycle. And they didn't say anything. Like, I knew a couple of the dudes. It wasn't like I didn't know them. I knew them. But there was no hello, no what's up. They just kind of hung off to the side, just looking and watching. And eventually they, they realized that there wasn't anything that they could get. So they kept it moving. But... It was told to me later, like, yeah, they came around hoping that y'all had that jewelry on because they was going to rob y'all right there on the spot. That was, when you talk about the quote-unquote celebrity, it's, it's, there's good and bad that comes with that. Nowadays, range ain't big enough, mosquito ain't jig enough. I'm kind of iced out, but my chain ain't thick enough. Album ain't hot enough, label said it's not enough. Singing in the hook, I need to change my look. My rims ain't big enough, chrome don't shine enough. I shop fit fab, but I still can't find enough. Ice For the entirety of my career, I've always tried to be a little bit outside the box. I felt like it was my job to give commentary on the industry, on the genre, when I saw certain things going left or going right. and you know, when I did Disposable Arts, it was because I realized that labels really had no value that, or they didn't hold any value in the music that they were releasing. All they were hoping for was a big payday, that something hit, that some single popped off and they made a bunch of money. And if it didn't, they would very easily and casually move on to the next artist or to the next song. So I started to understand just how disposable this art was to the industry and that's why i was so happy to see the major labels kind of crumble because i felt like they kind of deserved it because they didn't really nurture this music the way that they should have they really just tried to sponge off of it make as much as they could make for their company never really ever giving the artists any kind of legit deal that, that they could make a living or a real career out of it The whole purpose and intention behind Slaughterhouse was to speak to the fact that hip-hop had become so gangsterized that that's all that it was. And that bothered me because up to that point, hip-hop had been many different things. You know, you had such a wide variety of different types of artists. There was just a good variety of different types of music out there. But the success of N.W.A., led the industry or the the genre I should say into this tailspin of gangster 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 rap is selling right now NWA was like four times platinum or something crazy and you had all these offshoot wannabe NWA groups crews MCs coming out trying to basically promote the exact same message of gang banging 
40 drinking, gun shooting, hoe hopping, and that's all I started to hear after a while. And I knew half of it wasn't real. I, I, I knew that cats were just saying it because that was the thing to say. Guns in 40s was like crazy prevalent on the East Coast as well as the West Coast. Not so much the gangbanger aspect, but definitely the blunts. There's a million weed songs at that time, a million gun songs, a million hoe songs. And I was like, man, like there's more to hip hop than this. And my purpose and intention was to show that you can make a super grimy, dark, hard record without saying any of the same typical stuff that everybody was saying on every single record that I was hearing. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the rest, directs you where to go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you had the time of your life. How my life actually connects to where I am in my life right now and career-wise where I am. In 2005, my mom passed away at the age of 54, completely unexpected, collapsed at home. She lived alone in Virginia. She collapsed at home one morning, didn't show up at work, and it wasn't until two days later that a friend of hers who had an extra set of keys and hadn't heard from her decided to just go over and check on her. It was a difficult thing for me to deal with. At her funeral, I decided, because when I went to her home, I was going through all of her stuff, and I stumbled upon boxes and boxes of photo albums. My grandmother had passed away in 98, so she had all my grandmother's photo albums plus all of hers. And I went through these photo albums, and I just started looking at her life in picture form. I decided that I wanted to do a slideshow I wanted to do a slideshow in honor of her life. So uh, a friend of mine, Rob, he helped me out. I brought him all the photos, and I picked the music. And there were uh, four different songs that were played in the slideshow. The music changed. And we sat there for about three or four hours putting together this slideshow. We put together this incredible slideshow and, and Green Day was the, the final record. So take the photographs and still frames in your mind Hanging on a shelf in good health and good time Tattoos and memories and dead skin on trial For what it's worth, it was worth all the while It's something unpredictable But in the end it's right I had heard that song a few times before, and it stood out to me. I remember the last episode of Jerry Seinfeld, them playing that song. I don't know what it was about that last episode and that music that resonated with me, but I immediately fell in love with the song, wanted to know where it came from, and I, and I basically found it and had it. And I didn't really know Green Day before that record, but something directed me to that song when I saw that Seinfeld final episode 
and watching it, watching the the history of the show and everything that happened throughout the, all of the seasons, all kind of put together in a in almost like a compilation of events with that music. It inspired me to do this slideshow. Before I picked any of the other music, I knew that Green Day was going to be the final record that I played, and that was how the slideshow was going to end. And to this day, I can't hear that song without thinking about my mother. actually was where I got really, really connected with not just music, but hip-hop, with rapping, with production. Majority of the samples that were used on my first album were from my mother's record collection, directly. She allowed me to take some of those records to the studio. I think the first couple of times I may have snuck the records out without permission and hope that she didn't miss them. Hearing those records and that music playing in the background all the time, it has an effect on you. There's just no way around it. And I started to go into her collection and listen to songs. You know, I listened to Gil Scott Heron, like all these artists, Ohio players, Isaac Hayes. Like I was just like listening to these records and I would just put the needle down and just listen to them and, and zone out and... I started trying to figure out what would I want to rap over, and her record collection played a huge part in me kind of getting my career off the ground. focused on the fact that I was going to college and she was paying this money and I don't care nothing about all that music stuff, it's cool, you can do that, but graduate and come out, get yourself a job. And the same year that I graduated from college, 88, I graduated from college and let's say May of 88 and by September, October of 88, my mom gave me the ultimatum. She said, you're gonna have to get a job or you gotta go. She didn't see me actively pursuing having job interviews. Like I wasn't out there. And the reason I wasn't out there is because I met Marley and all of a sudden the ball was rolling. Then he asked me to be on Marley Marley Control. Then we recorded the symphony. All of this stuff was happening. And I got a couple of little checks or whatever, a little thousand dollars here, or whatever. So she gave me the ultimatum. Late October, early November, she said, I want you out by your birthday, was her exact words, I believe. And my, and my birthday is December 4th. But it just so happened that I got my album advance right before my birthday. 
and I got a check for $25,000 and I was so proud with my chest sticking out I was just like I'm moving thing because it was just always me and my mom like she was a single mother like she didn't have it was, it was no male in the house nothing like that so we pretty much were roommates for my whole life until I became an adult you know when I lived with her I had the responsibility of I had to clean the bathroom twice a week I had to always wash the dishes like I couldn't go to bed if there was dishes in the sink she would literally get me out of bed if I was if I had already laid down and there was dishes in the sink, I had to get my ass up and I had to wash those dishes. And I, but I remember that that first time I should say that she came to my apartment, my place, and she came in first time and I was showing her around and she saw a whole bunch of dishes in the sink and she she looked at them and she was about to say something and I said uh 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 I don't want to hear nothing. I said this is my house. If I want dishes in the sink piled up, they're gonna be dishes in the sink piled up and. You know, it was kind of a joking moment. It was a light moment. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't an angry moment. It's my spot, you know. Welcome. Yeah, I was raised to the sound of the 70s. Earth, wind, and fire sounded so heavenly. Ohio players and Curtis Mayfield. Aretha Franklin's picture on a playbill. Al Green in a tight suit, all white. Mini Ripper saying high notes all night. Mom's even had a box full of 45s. Put the needle down, yeah, that sounds sort of live. Sound like the kind of groove I could rap over. Got drunk off the beat and I was back sober. Bring that part back, yeah, I'ma murder that. Downy hat on a track with Roberta Flack. High records in the what? In the bag. Sneak him out for she noticed that they gone. Gotta think. I don't know. Should I rap off my mom's favorite song? When she passed away, I took, I took that experience. And I basically put it into my music in the form of the newest record that I released. The name of the record is M.A. Doom, Son of Yvonne. And the album was dedicated to her, her memory. The artwork has pictures of her inside, the whole bit. But... I use the album and the rhymes on the album as a form of therapy to kind of just work through these issues. I mean, the fact that she passed away in 05 is 2013 and just talking about some of these topics get me emotional tells you that, you know, there's a lot of raw, raw feelings there, raw emotions there to kind of work through. And I'm still working through them, but I use that album as a great, a great form of therapy. And then now being on tour, I'm on the, I'm on the Son of Yvonne tour. Every tour poster, you know, I'm about to go to Europe and we're going to get a van wrapped. And my mother's name is going to be on the side of the van, huge. And that's like, a, that's like a great thing for me to accomplish in her honor. The entire show is based around her. I'm telling, I'm telling these little anecdotal stories about my childhood and about how my mother played a part in my childhood. And setting up records, using her kind of as the backdrop. And then a lot of the songs that I spit have references to my mother i have a routine that references specifically my mother and so she's like in the show she's completely a part of the show it's pretty cool if there's never a chance again to be seen 
on the pages inside of another magazine. If the luxuries in life I can't of course afford, if I never win a billboard or a source award, I wouldn't want your pity or your sympathy, even if Marley never put me on the symphony. But I gotta admit it, I'm glad he did it. It's considered the first verse that I spitted. I realized that I'm still a part of history. I learned the key to victory, it's not a mystery. You see, I got a lot of love for what I do in life. And after this, then I'ma find something new in life. I guarantee you it'll be something that I really love. I give thanks for my life to God up above. I would like to have people to say that I had a significant contribution to hip hop. A contribution of some significance. I understand that I'm never going to be viewed in the same uh, light as a Rakim or Karis One or Jay-Z or somebody like that. And hip-hop has tears. They have tears of, of royalty, if you will. And while I feel like creatively and musically and lyrically, I match up well against the biggest names that you could throw at me, I probably haven't had the type of commercial success or fan success, if you will, as some other names, for whatever reason, timing, style. I was, like I said, I was always trying to be a little different than everybody else, and so that probably went against me a little bit for a lot of people. People sometimes people just want it real straight and plain and simple. That's just that wasn't what I was here to do. And the one thing that touring does is it just puts me back in touch with those people that got it. They're saying the words to every song, and the club might only have 300 people in it, but those 300 people understood what my contribution has been and will continue to be. Hip-hop has no ceiling. This means that there's going to be people that are going to be rocking with hip-hop into their 50s, potentially into their 60s. Like We haven't seen it yet, but it seems like that's the path that we're on as long as there are artists making quote-unquote grown man rap and it's good and people are buying it and supporting it and they're able to tour with that music then it basically bodes well for an artist like myself who's already had kind of his run that maybe uh i can keep on going a little longer Tales of a nigga living in his mama basement Listen to a bitch and every morning it's the same shit Time for me to get out on this corner make a cane flip But what's a better nigga residence and be in basic I'm knocking at your dope bitch like I was maintenance and you sprung a leader Heard that you get pounds of that grape shit every other week So my inclination to take shit at his fucking beat Stash it, broke it down, let the sevens go for a buck a piece Puffin' sweets for a minute, switched up the optimal but Now I twist my shit in the woods when I got that tropical Some might say that I think illogical Cause I still believe in God but down the Hip-hop matters because it is the music of not just my generation, but the next probably 20 generations of young people in this world. I'm not going to say America, in this world. It's an important youth movement of music. It's the only music that I can really point to that's for young people that actually has some sort of social value. There's lessons in it. The words mean something in most cases, and you can learn something from the music as long as the people that are recording it are responsible people. It's needed. The youth need to continually be guided. If they're not going to be guided by positivity in terms of lyrics, then they're going to gravitate to the negative. And as much negative as there is out there, Something has to balance that out, and for me, that's that's this music. It's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right. 
I hope you had the time of your life. 